this has been a really fun series for me. I have enjoyed uh, teaching this because if you've been part of this over the last several weeks, you know that uh, in a lot of ways this has a lot more to do with life than just money. Money is, is central to everything that we're talking about here. And in this uh, series, I've been referring quite a bit uh, back to a guy by the name of John Wesley. John Wesley was a, a minister in Europe, and his ministry spread to America. He um, actually was a founder of the Methodist Church, and there are probably 30 million people in the, in the world today who have been affected, still being affected by his ministry. But John Wesley uh, was, was part of what was called the Great Awakening. It was a spiritual awakening that happened in Europe that spread to this country. And Something very interesting happened in the middle of this awakening. As he began to teach God's word and, and, and people had never heard it before or, and they just, or they had this picture of religion and it wasn't you know, doing anything for them. As they began to apply the principles of God's word in their life at every level, something weird happened. They started moving out of poverty into making more money than they'd ever made before, actually many of them becoming quite wealthy. In fact, John Wesley himself became uh, this guy who, who, over the course of his life, earned about $30 million in today's money that he had to figure out what to do with. And it was because of what happened in his life that he began teaching the principles of, of what he learned and what Scripture was saying to the people around him. He wanted people to understand as they moved from poverty into an income level that they'd never seen, hey, there's a reason for this and we need to understand what that's all about. And so he said something and, and you'll read, if you Google all of the things that he said, one of the ones that's at the top is this. He said, earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. So I took that and I just kind of flipped it uh, to get to where we wanted to go. So the first week I was talking about giving and last week is about saving and this week is about earning. But you have to understand that the, the principles here are not just about money. You can put, and you'll see this today in a huge way, you could put just about anything on the board uh, in, in, you know, other than money, and this works too. But I want to talk about money. I want to talk, I've got a little bit of money here. Um, the very first week I told you that money had two properties to it. And we, we see this vividly in Scripture. Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 6, I believe it was, he said that your treasure is where your heart is. In other words, if you want to know where your heart is, if you want to know where you really are, look at money. Look at your money, the money that you have. And it'll tell you a lot about your heart. And in this, we see that money has a couple of properties. The first one, and I, I told you this, is the money is, is a particle. It, it's, it's, uh, it's, in this case, it's paper. Um, 
You know, in other countries, it could be something else that's used for trade and commerce. But money has a, it's, it's a particle. And in that format, it serves as a thermometer. It will tell you, if you look at your checkbook or you look at your credit cards, uh, you look at your bank statement, it will tell you a lot about who you are and what you do and where your priorities are. And so you can use it as a thermometer. But the other thing that this passage of Scripture teaches us is that money has an energy to it. It, It's got energy. And what I mean by that is, if you look at your money, and you look at your checkbook, and you look at your credit card, you say, whoa, you know, I really don't have my priorities correct. Jesus is teaching us something here. He says, if you take this and put it where it needs to go, your heart follows that. And sometimes we have, well, many times we have to do that, don't we? We have to change our heart because in this culture, in our world, and, and, it, and frankly, we think it's unique, I mean, because of all the wealth in the world right now, but it's always been like this, where we needed to do, take the action to move our heart. So if your heart's messed up in terms of your priorities, you can begin by working with the money, and, and it'll change your heart. I'm going to give this away. Artiste, you need, you need some money, dude. You want some money? You can have this. You're going to have to come up here and get it. But, and then in about 30 minutes, give it back to Jesus, okay? <laughs> so um, there are some lies that we have bought into. I want to talk about this, and, and it kind of starts with these these two diagrams that I've drawn here. Um, Over here, the world revolves around me, revolves around what I want. It's my feelings, my soul. It's, it's, you know, these yearnings that are inside and it makes me do the things that I do. But as you come to Christ and you give your life to Jesus, the the, the deal is becoming a disciple is that the center of the world changes in your heart. And so... Over here, I'm in the middle. I'm, I'm, the world exists for me. Everything <laughs> exists for me. You know, it's like, like a little baby, right? That, that's, what they, uh, that's what they do. It's about me. And um, it's, it's a God-given gift that children have. And, and then sometimes we don't ever lose it. It's just there. As a believer, a follower of Christ, part of finding freedom and discovering purpose and making a difference in the world is that Jesus comes to the center of our lives. And so we look at everything different. We look at, we, we look at marriage differently. We, we look at um, careers differently. We look at money differently. So one of the lies that we uh, deal with here is this. Money is mine. We think it's ours. It's, you know, God, we've earned it. We've worked for it. We've got this job. We went to school. We did all this stuff. And now we're making a smack and it's ours. And, um, but we read in Psalm 24 that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and everything in the world. And, and it's been founded that way. And we discover that money is not ours. Money is God's. You know, in, in church, and I, I'm sure I've said this before, and, I, and if I did, I apologize, but we've always said that the first 10% is God's. It belongs to Him. We need to change that. 
Um, it's all his, every bit of it. And it's, it's not about us giving him his money. Hey, God, we're going <laughs> to give you some money because obviously you need it. You know, it's, it, you, see, you see where that goes? It just doesn't work. So that's one of the lies. Last week I talked about who it's for, and money is for me. We've worked really hard at it. We've succeeded in our business or our job or our career or whatever. And, and so now we get to spend it on ourselves. In fact, we not only get to spend it on ourselves, we get to figure out how to allocate it to ourselves for the rest of the time that we're on earth. And, and so we have this idea that money is for me. But when you get to the truth of God's teaching, the truth of his word, and, and, and you're going to have to lend me a little trust here because I want you to understand this doesn't leave you out in the cold. It doesn't leave you, you know, being vagrant. It, in fact, it fills your life with richness. And if you aren't willing to make these changes, you'll miss a lot about life. But one of the things that we need to learn, and, and as we grow, we realize that money is for God's kingdom. It's about his kingdom. It's about everything that he believed in and, and what Jesus died for. And in the last words he said, you know, one of the last things he ever said was, here's what I want you to do with your life. Here's what I want you to do. If you're a Christ follower, this is what I want you to do. And I want you to go reach people for me and tell them about me and, and, and bring life change to me, to those people. That's what, he, that's what he wants us to do. And so that's his kingdom. It's putting him first in everything. And that's what our money is really for. It's not for me. It's not for me to do what I want with and to live any way I want with. So those were the first two weeks. Today... Big one, big one. Uh, money makes me happy. Now, some of you aren't going to buy into this real quick. Because maybe you don't have a lot of money or as much as you want. And you say, Greg, um, give me a shot at this. You know, I think I could be happy with a lot of money. And so I, I've got a big job today. Um, today we're going to talk about earn all you can, earning. And there are two principles with this, two, two um, components of this earning thing. And you have to forgive me, I did not put this in your notes. So you're actually going to have to put this in your notes yourself. I can't do everything for you. Um, the first principle that I want you to write down is the principle of work. Work. I'm going to talk to you about that for just a moment. Everybody here should be working somewhere, doing work. Um, so what I want to do is I'm going to count to three. And when I, count, when I say three, then I want you to tell me what you do for work. So if you're a mechanic, I don't want your job description. I don't want the name of the organization. I just want to know what you do, okay? So if you're a mechanic, say I'm a mechanic. If you're a teacher, say I'm a teacher. If you're a stay-at-home mom, say I'm a mom. If you're an attorney, doesn't matter what you say, we're not going to believe it. So here we go. One word. Ready? One, two, three. Okay. I just wanted to do that. It helps nothing. It means nothing. Other than I'm glad you're working. Um, Paul said in Colossians 3, and right away, right at the very beginning, I want to make a connection here for you. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people, 
Remember that the Lord, now here's the part I want you to catch. The Lord will give you an inheritance. I, I want you to equate work with an inheritance as your reward. And that the master you are serving is Christ. Let me read it again. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance. He's promising you something for good work. John Wesley wrote this. None of us really earns money by our own cleverness or hard work. For God is the one who gives us the energy and intelligence. Just take it a step further. Oh, you know, I worked for this, I did. How do you think you got there? Okay. He is the true source of all our wealth. So we ought to gain... You could write the word earn in there. We ought to gain all we can gain. But we ought not to gain money at the expense of life, nor our health. I think it's interesting. God hasn't placed a limit on our ability to make money. He hasn't capped us and said, this is all you should have. In fact, His Word teaches us something different. His Word teaches us that we can gain, we should gain all that we can, biblically. We need to gain and earn as much as we possibly can, and we need to do it in a way that it doesn't have an ill effect on our life and our, in our home and, and the things around us. And so, I want to go to a story today um, that is really interesting. It's about a man that probably everybody in here knows something about, and um, yet I want, to, I want to convey this in a way that it really hits you hard today. Um, the man is David, King David, and I'm telling you, this guy had a serious life. I, I mean, just amazing life. When you look at, at David's life, it's kind of like this. It's a trajectory that goes northeast. And I want you to just, in this lifespan that he had, I want to show you just some things that happened in his life. Down here, he was somewhere between the ages of 11 and 13 years of age. And, and this is when he was anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. So, I mean, this happened pretty young. Okay, then we come up here just a little ways. He's 17 years old. You know what happens here? Goliath. Young people, I want you to pay attention to this. Some of the most amazing things that ever happened in his life happened at your age. And um, I just think it's an amazing story. You get to David's life in his 20s. David is becoming a class act warrior. He is just so courageous. I mean, he will go after anything and anybody. And he was so brave and he did so many things in the military life that he lived that people were writing songs about him and singing them all over the world. I mean, the known world. It made King Saul so angry he wanted to kill him. I mean, he had such popularity. In fact, it was during this time that just these incredible 
warriors began to collect around him. They didn't, I don't know that they cared anything about Israel. They just loved him. They wanted to be next to him. And so you, you read about this in the book of Judges and it talks about the 30 mighty men and then the three mighty men and then the three mightier men and then the one super mighty guy and the 37 mighty men. This was the time that they all gathered around him and it was incredible. He was unstoppable. At the age of 30, he becomes the king of Judah, of one of the breakaway tribes. It's a start, politically. At the age of 37, he becomes the king of Israel. You see where this is going? It just flies hard high right. Then he gets to the age of 49. And something happens. Something changes. And as you start reading through the story, it's, it's heartbreaking. He's still this incredible guy, this powerful person. But life starts to do this. And you can follow it all the way through his 70s. And it is so difficult to read. So, what happened here? What took place here? What was it that destroyed the trajectory? I want to read this. It's out of 2 Samuel 11.1. It says, In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, here it is. David stayed behind in Jerusalem. What happened here? First thing that happened is David decided not to go to work. He decided not to go to work. Do not miss this. I think sometimes th- we, we miss this point. Apparently, this is a bigger deal than we might think. Maybe we underestimate the importance of going to work. Maybe we're so wired for productivity. We're so wired to earn more. We're so wired to gain more, which is from God, that when we try to get out of work, something breaks in us. And something breaks in society, in my opinion. Write this down in your notes. A person cannot thrive while figuring out how to get out of work. You cannot thrive when you're figuring out how to get out of work. I want to talk to a couple groups of people here. I want to talk to those of you young people who are students. Listen, you think you hate school? I hated school. I hated school more than you will ever hate school. And I will tell you this. The best thing you can do for you is while you hate it, 
work hard at it. And let God do what he wants to do in the middle of taking the dumbest classes in the world. Just do it. Just do it. Be the best students you can be. Young adults, we're running through this in a na- as a nation. Not getting jobs. Not doing anything. Just living, mooching off your parents. Get the heck out of their house. Get it. Whoa. I don't, don't do this right now. I don't want to create some family disturbance in the church service. But get a job. Get out. Go. Do. You weren't designed to do nothing. You were designed to work. You say, I don't like to work. I don't want it. I don't like bosses. I go to work. Not going to work causes problems, big problems. Now I'm going to get really close to home. I want to talk to those of you who've lived your entire work life dreaming of retirement. Don't let that kill you because it will. You weren't designed to get your pension and sit around and do nothing. You weren't designed to get your pension and play golf the rest of your life. And somebody goes, oh, yes, I was. You're over here, dude. Okay, <laughs> we got to move you, okay? No, we were designed to change the world around us. Don't try to figure out how to thrive when you're trying to figure out how to get out of work. But there was something else that took place over here, and I'm going to spend pretty much all the time that I have left talking about this one thing. The second principle of earning has to do with a nasty word called coveting. Coveting. So here's, here's David, not at work. And, 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 you know, this one day he decides not to go to work. And then he decides how he's going to find happiness. How he would define what it's like to be happy. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, okay, this gets worse. David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace... He slept with her. Now, I'm not going to read the whole rest of the story, but in a nutshell, it goes like this, that it ends up that she got pregnant. David needs to try to cover this up because her husband, Uriah, is actually out on the battlefield working like he's supposed to, and there is no way that she could have gotten pregnant with him out there. And so this is not good news. So he has to figure out what to do. And he, he, he you know, those of you that know the story, he, he manipulated to get Uriah brought back home and to spend time with his wife. And he literally would not go in the house. He slept outside of the house because he knew that the rules of war is when you were a warrior and a leader, you didn't take take any any time for your own pleasure you were about war and so he was so dedicated to that 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 creed and so dedicated to David that he slept outside on the sidewalk so that plan didn't work and so then David as you would read the rest of the story you find out you find out that he puts Uriah on the front lines of the battlefield 
pulls his other troops back and this mighty man was slain, was killed. And so now David has adultery and murder as the blood on his hands. It was still under wraps, under cover, until God spoke to the prophet. And the prophet came and confronted David. And then the rest of the world knew. We're still talking about it today. 2 Samuel 12.8, God speaking through the prophet to David. And he goes this, he goes, I gave you your master's house. He's talking about, gave you everything that Saul had. His wives, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And listen to what he said. He said, if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. If, if you wanted more, if you needed more, I, I could have given you much, much more. See, that's God's nature. It's His nature to give us more. We, I don't know, somewhere the church years and years ago had this idea that, you know, that poverty and salvation went hand in hand together. It is so untrue. And, and in fact, if you follow scriptural principles, you're going to find out that, that there's a lot of money that's supposed to be brought into the kingdom. God is not anti-more, but perhaps we can't handle more. Perhaps we live in such a way that God can't give us more. And we take what God has already given us to steward and we try to make ourselves happy with it. And so instead of being stewards, we pretend we're owners. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus gives us this picture in a a different way. Um, a young man came up to him, a wealthy young man, and he wasn't trying to mess with Jesus. He was totally sincere. And he was so enthralled by what Jesus was teaching. And he said, Jesus, how do I become this person you're talking about? How do I become a follower? How do I do what I need to do here to, 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 to make sure I'm right? And Jesus says, well, you, you need to. And he starts reading off the Ten Commandments. And the guy's like, yeah, 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 I got all that. And, and, you know, and Jesus throws a couple more things out there. And yeah, I got that. And, and Jesus saw something that only Jesus could see. In fact, this guy couldn't even see it. And he said something that would have moved this guy from here to over here. He said, I want you to take all that you have and sell it. Give it to the poor. Give the money to the poor and follow me. Now some people have tried to say, well, you know, if you're a Christian, you need to sell everything. That's, that's so messed up. This is something that Jesus saw that needed to change in this man. And it was coveting. You know what he coveted? We always think that coveting is wanting something that somebody else has. But in its truest form, if you look up the definition of coveting, sometimes we want what we have. We want to own what we have. It's, all, it's about ownership. Coveting, coveting is, it, it really is about somebody else. It's about God and it's His stuff. And we want it. We want what He has given us. And Jesus was trying to deal with that in the life of this man. Listen, coveting or envy, whatever you want to call it, 
will destroy your life. Listen to what the prophet said again to David. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. In other words, he didn't say, I despise you. He said, you have despised me. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, this is what will happen. And it did. Get your notes. I want you to write down a few things here. Coveting makes you stare at what you don't have. It makes you stare at what you don't have. You begin to say, I'm not happy. And you have a lot. Next thing you know, it stirs discontent. Now, you can't see what you do have because you're, write it down, you're obsessed over what you don't have. You have so much, but you're obsessed over what you don't have. This creates a loss of affection and gratitude for what you do have. And so you become ungrateful for what you do have. And folks, ungrateful is a silent killer of almost every good thing in your life. It kills the greatest blessings that you've ever experienced. One last thing to write down in that section. It's this. Coveting makes stupid seem smart. Do you think somewhere down in here in David's life, he ever thought, man, I wish somebody had just said, David, go to work. Or David... Be happy with what you have. Stare at what you have. Let me tell you what happened, what really happened here, and and the impact of what David did. Um, Bathsheba, her, this was, David knew who she was. He He didn't recognize her, But once he knew who she was, he knew who she was. Bathsheba was the granddaughter of a guy named Ahithophel. Ahithophel was the number one advisor to the king. He was David's top advisor. When David needed to know something, there were two people that he would call. He would call the prophet of God, and he would call Ahithophel and say, what do we do? And Ahithophel was his number one right-hand guy to go to. Ahithophel had a son. His name was Eliam. You can read about him in in the book of uh, Judges and Judges. I think that's it. Eliam was one of the 37 mighty men. When David was in his 20s, Eliam was one of the first people to come and say, I'm with you. I'm going to go with you. Eliam had a son. His name was Uriah. Uriah was one of the 37 mighty men. You see who these people are? These guys are the core of David's 
kingdom. They are everything that made him who he was. He just wiped out in an instant over something that he thought was smart. He did something do, do stupid and it wiped out the core of his entire life. Ah. If somebody had just said, David, walk away, walk away. This is stupid. Walk away. What, what might be in your life today that's stupid? Seems smart. But you know it is not what God wants. What is it that you should walk away from? I, I told you earlier, this, this has so much more to do with life than just money. But now I want to bring it home a little bit. What, uh, what does this have to do with the money? Well, we think it's ours. We think it's for us. We think it's going to make us happy. And so we start to have this envy, coveting on our, on our own stuff, right? And yet the Bible teaches us that we're supposed to earn more. That, that we are uh, not to earn more because we want more for ourselves, but we're, we need more because of stewardship, because God has a plan for that money. He has a plan for our lives and what we should do. And, and so just a couple of things here. You can write this down if you want. You need to start staring at what you do have. Second, you need to learn to be content. Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, he says, I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. Paul's saying, wherever you are, be content. Now, that does not mean to, to be lazy. I want you to read something else. The same book, Philippians 3. I don't mean to say I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I haven't achieved it. Now, he's in prison. He's getting ready to die, and here's what he's saying. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. The thing I'm trying to say here is we interpret contentment as like doing nothing, just being content. And Paul is saying, be content so that you can take the world. Be content without, write, it, write it down your notes, this is the key, being content without being complacent. I'll give you this last one because I just want to fill in the blanks. Money is a tool. It's not a treasure. And money makes me Eternally wealthy. Makes me eternally wealthy. I want to give you one last statement here, and then we're going to um, talk about a couple of practical things. What your heart yearns for, you'll never receive through self-gratification. I talked about this last week and 
I want you to see it again this week. A lot of what we do, good or bad, comes out of our yearnings, out of what we want, what, what takes us over. And, and that's what happened here with David. He got overtaken by something. I mean, he had everything he could ever want. He, he had, it's ridiculous, and, and even this was wrong. He had so many wives and, and, and actually broke a command of the Bible in doing so. But God let it go. And yet there was this one other. Whatever is pushing the yearnings inside of us indicates there's something going on. There's something that needs to happen. But when you try to fix the yearnings with self-gratification, coming up with your plan to get you somewhere that you want to be, it always ends poorly. The yearnings, the thing that says inside, I need more, I need more, is God speaking. And, it says, and He says, I've got this for you. I want you to have more. I want you to grow to places that you haven't even seen yet. Your greatest dreams can't touch the dreams that I have for you. I think that one of the greatest places to start in getting there is the thing I said earlier about money. Use it to take your heart somewhere. Begin to think, how could I live in such a way that I would become a steward, not an owner? How could I live in such a way that I could change the world? So, for those that are looking for a place to start, I've said this for the last two weeks, and today will be the last time for a while. It starts with this card that's in your program. It's called the 90-Day Giving Test. It's the first step. It's the first step of saying it's not mine. We know it's all God's, but we hang on to it. And if you're hanging on to it a whole lot, this is where you start in tithing. Tithing is not an issue of money. It's an issue of trust. God knows the most difficult area for us to turn over to Him is our finances. And that's true, isn't it? Malachi 3.10 says, Bring one-tenth of your income into the storehouse so there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord of armies. See if I won't open the windows of heaven for you and flood you with blessings. Countless people, I I wrote this, countless people experience God's blessing when they tithe, but often the first step is the hardest one to take. The 90-day giving test is a response to God's promise in Malachi. So, Here's our commitment, Destiny Church's commitment to you. If you tithe for 90 days and God doesn't hold true to His promises, Destiny Church will refund 100% of your tithe from that three-month period of time. This is a money-back guarantee, a contract based on God's promises in Malachi 3.10. In other words, I want you to take the plunge. I want you to take the test. I want you to put your name on here, your email address, and when you're going to start tithing, which is giving 10% of your income to God. I want you to fill this out. And there's a bunch of stuff under there. I understand the formula. We'll lead them to it. The end of the three-month period, the three-month period. Okay? Television commercial. Okay? It's, it's the fine print that you might want to pay attention to because we will give you your money back if you feel like God didn't come through. 
But it's a first step. It's, it's, it's the step that you need to take. But today, in this last week, I want to specifically talk for a few moments just to the people who have already taken that step. You're already tithing. Some of you are giving over and above your tithe. I want to infect you with this idea that the money that you have left over after the tithe does not belong to you. Last week we talked about capping our living, level of living, our income needs, so that we could do more and more for the kingdom. And so I'm going to throw out a huge challenge to each of you. Mike Merritt and I, uh, along with 12, 13 other uh, folks, had this incredible opportunity to go to Cuba back in January. I've had a lifetime love for Cuba. Um, I grew up hearing my parents talk about the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban, Cuban Missile Crisis and Fidel Castro and the Castro family and the communists. And for the longest time, I didn't realize that this was an island right off the tip of Florida. I thought it, this must be over right underneath of Russia somewhere because we were always hating Russia at the same time. And that, you know, Cuba was maybe bigger than Russia. I, had, I did not know. When I found out that it was, they were a neighbor, well, for whatever reason, I've just always had this love for, for Cuba. And, and it didn't make any sense, but I have, I've always wanted to go there. And, and um, I didn't, you know, want to go li- end up in prison the rest of my life or anything. So I waited until I could take Mike with me and maybe they'd take him first, you know, or something like that. But, but I, we got there and, oh man, we had an experience that I will never get over. It seems that God really didn't give a rip about the government that his spirit has infected that island. There are like 12, 13 million people that live in Cuba. God has been basically banned, you know, from a government standpoint. The church, every church has to be registered. Um, But when they weren't looking, something happened. And we had a chance to meet 250 church planters. These are people that all they do is go around the country and plant churches. And uh, Mike and I went to a, a church. I got to speak uh, speak to the people in this church on a particular Sunday. And it's, they're, they're house churches. They, in fact, sometimes in this case, they just covered in the front porch and turned it into a church. And there were 40, 50 people in there. And it was just amazing. Well, over the last five years, these church planters have planted 2,700 churches in Cuba. And people are getting saved all over that country. It's been unbelievable. There are hundreds of thousands of people who are becoming Christ followers because of what these folks are doing. And, and we got to meet them. And part of the reason that we're going, we went there was because these 250 church planters have just lost their support. The organization that was helping them can no longer help them. They can't afford it. They've got commitments in other places. 
And I did something really stupid. I told these guys that we're going to find a million dollars for them over the next five years. Because here's the plan. If, if, we, can, if we can fund these 250 people for five years, they will plant 6,000 more churches in that aisle and they'll cover it from one end to the other. We will change a nation. Literally change a nation. The best thing is we don't have to send missionaries because Castro made sure that everybody could, could, could read and write. And so what we did was, we didn't, but the, these friends of ours gave them the Timothy Initiative stuff from David Nelms. And these people have been down there not just learning how to be Christ followers, but how to be church planters. And, and so they only need $50 a month to live on, another 50 for for the church expenses for five years. They need $100 a month for five years, and it's, it's one and done. It's over. And they, they support themselves. They pay for the widows and the orphans. It's like the most amazing mission idea ever. And it captured my heart. And so I'm looking for people who will support church planters. So I want you to take a look at this uh, video clip. Cuba. Its name means fertile land and a great place. However, for most of us, it has been that island to the south that has seemed untouchable and unfriendly to our nation. But this nation has not been untouchable to God. In the middle of economic hardship, weather-related disaster, and political change, Cuba is experiencing a spiritual explosion. Obviously, this is not something that you will hear about in the news, but in the middle of all the challenges that this nation faces, the message of Jesus Christ is making an impact. Cuba is a beautiful island filled with beautiful people. The old cars, the colors, the architecture, all elements of old movies in former times. But there is something powerful going on under all the fading beauty of this place. It is truly a move of the Spirit of God in this nation. Today I'm in Havana, Cuba. Behind me are 250 men and women who are church planters. These incredible men and women have so very little, yet they love God so very much. They've gone out to the provinces and villages of Cuba and they've planted 2,700 new house churches and incredibly made nearly 100,000 new disciples for Jesus Christ. 100,000 new Christ followers. And they have a vision in the next five years to see 6,000 more house churches planted. And that means that the entire nation can be impacted for Jesus Christ in just five years. They call it Cuba para Cristo, Cuba for Christ. Pray for these men and women. Pray for their vision. There is a spiritual movement going on in Cuba today. And I invite you to join us and partner where God is working and be part of this great spiritual renewal. Cuba para Cristo. The window of opportunity to raise the needed support for these church planters is narrow. The door to Cuba's complete spiritual transformation is wide open, but it will not always be that way. All indications are that now is the time to make a difference in Cuba. It takes $100 per month to sponsor a church planter, 
$100 per month will start more than two churches per year. Simply go to www.worldhelp.net forward slash Cuba and give to support these pastors. If you are unable to fully support a church planter, team up with some friends to make this happen. Any amount that you give will make a huge difference in the lives of these wonderful people. When was the last time you had a chance to change an entire nation? The book of Acts is filled with stories about the world-changing work of the apostles. History tells us about the incredible impact of John Wesley, George Muller, Hudson Taylor. But what if you could actually participate in changing an entire nation with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ? You can, today. Let's change Cuba. So, I'm going to encourage you to give. I, we've got some booklets on a table back here. I'd love for you to just take with you and read through it. And there's a DVD in there. You could watch a little bit more about this. And uh, But I am on the hook for a lot of money with this because I just feel like God's called, it, called, called us to, to make this happen for these people. And... Um, so I'm talking to business people and corporations and everything that I can, um, but the real heart of this will be the people who say, "Hey, I'm going to I'm going to adopt a church planter." And and like you saw there, it's a hundred dollars a month. I know some of you can't do that. Maybe get with your life group and find out if together you might be able to pull off planting one or two of the church planters. Do do something. But this is for those of you who have maybe cap things at 10% and thought that was enough and maybe you're beginning to see that's just the start of what God wants to do in us we live for him it's all about him one last thought I think I've said that three times it's all about this it's about moving from here where the world is around you to over here where it's around Jesus Christ. You will never come up with anything yourself on your own that will come close to the life that God has for you. You may have desires and emotions and all the envy and everything that here's what I want, here's what I have and it won't come close to what God has for you. Now, those things can do this to your life and who wants that I don't want to like totally slam King David in Acts chapter 13 it says David um, served God's purpose in his generation and then he fell asleep it's, it's probably the greatest epitaph that was ever written but David had a rough second half of life the most pain-filled things happened to him because of one day. I think that maybe because of one day, things could really go up for you. That might be today. So if you're here today and you would say, Greg, <clears throat> my whole life is over here. I don't center my life around Christ. I haven't even started that journey. This might be your first step, which is to invite him to be your Savior and your Lord, the, the one you will follow. And it's really a decision you make. It's, it's not a... It, it's not religion. It's just a decision. Okay, I'm giving my life to Jesus. I'm not going to live on my own anymore. If you want to do that, I'm going to pray this short prayer. Pray it with me. And then we'll move from there. Lord, 
I give you my life. I give you my future. I am so happy to give you my sin and my guilt and my shame, but I want to give you my life too. And I pray that you would give me your life. Amen.